Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Film for Fans podcast, the podcast from movie fans for movie fans. I am your host, Ryan Denlevy. Join, as always, co-host Rob Dunham. Hey, everybody. The start of hockey season. We were both watching it tonight. Mm-hmm. I have uh, less hope for my team than you do for yours, but <laughs> game one but, victories. Potentially. Yeah, on this night, we both had wins, so that's a good start. However, this is not a hockey podcast as much as uh, that would be fun. This is a movie podcast. And this is part two of our Gladiator Revisited episode. Um, If you did not get a chance to listen to last week's episode, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to it on your favorite podcast platform and or YouTube. Uh, We began discussing gladiator and ran out of time so we are going to continue uh our revisited gladiator uh we're going to talk a little bit first about a a story from brendan frazier rob's going to get into his uh ongoing horror education and we'll see from there uh but let's uh let's begin with uh one one of our news stories here before we get to uh, gladiator again and that is brendan frazier said he is open to doing another mummy movie and he also had some interesting things to say about the tom cruise reboot uh rob uh, why don't you take the lead on this one give us an update on this story so essentially brendan frazier was asked if he would be interested in possibly rebooting his mummy character uh his version of the mummy um series which he did three movies Mm -hmm. uh, previously and he said that he would be open to doing that again and that he felt that uh tom cruise's iteration of the movie struggled so much because it wasn't fun and i think that i have to agree with him on this because i felt like the the Tom Cruise mummy that came out seemed really too self-serious to me mm-hmm. and felt a lot like, um, kind of like what DC is trying to do with, uh, some of their superhero stuff and make it dark and tonally, um, you know, not much, uh, light emotion or humor at all. And that was kind of what I felt like, the mummy with Tom Cruise was like, mm-hmm. but it's very different from the tone in Brendan Fraser's versions. And, um, I much prefer the Brendan Fraser versions. I think Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weiss together were a really good, uh, team when it came to, um, casting for those movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were solid. They were solid, uh, like, action adventure movies from the late 90s early 2000s it was uh yeah it was it was a solid series and i think you're right one of the things that one of the things that tends to happen sometimes with reboots sometimes with sequels um is it sometimes people misinterpret why something was popular and that misinterpretation uh can lead to some uh bad films it leads to some bad ideas because if you think what it if you think that you can just tag on the name of the franchise yet change 
what people liked about it, you're going to have another thing common most of the time. I understand that sometimes you're trying to appeal to a new audience or the game has changed in the intervening years, but you still have to rely on buy-in from the audience that was already created. Um, it's really hard to just create a new audience out of thin air for a series that has not existed or that has existed for from previously. And what's really interesting too um, with The Mummy with Tom Cruise is that this was Warner attempting to launch kind of like a, a monster movie universe um, to go back to some of the classic monster movies. Like they had uh, Dr. Jekyll, and Mr. Hyde movie planned. They had a Frankenstein movie planned. Um, and they were all supposed to go in line with this, this being the first. And when you watch the credits, there's actually one of the splash like um, credits at the beginning is basically that like it's, like it's a credit um, specifically for that universe, hmm. which never actually ended up happening. Yeah. So it seems a bit strange watching it. You're like, <laughs> what is this supposed to be? And it's uh, because it was supposed to be the start of something that never actually started. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Really interesting stuff. Uh, but it'd be good to see Brendan Fraser back. Um, yeah. I think, uh, I think it's a worthwhile pursuit. Yeah. Uh, it seems like he's starting to get some roles. He's uh, yeah very uh widely claimed for um one of his new roles the whale coming out that mm -hmm. i'm forward to seeing um so hopefully he is you know he he if you don't know much about um his life he's been through quite a bit yeah um and was uh blacklisted for quite a while in hollywood because of speaking up for himself and uh some of the things that happened to him that were really wrong yeah um so i hope you know we really hope that he is able to overcome that and you know do acting again because i've always felt that he was someone who put a lot of heart and emotion and truth into his performances and even something like absolutely absurd and stupid like george of the jungle i felt <laughs> like he played that character like yeah like he cared about it mm -hmm. um and there are not a whole lot of actors who would have done that in my opinion and I'd like to see more of him and stuff. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. That's just a little story to catch you up on uh, some of the goings on uh, around the movie industry. Uh, but now let's return to Gladiator. Um, if you didn't, just to catch you up on where we are at here, um, I brought to the attention um, that I had seen Gladiator recently, and I was just struck by how amazing a film it was. Again, it's been a while since I've seen it. Uh, this film came out in 2000, starring Russell Crowe primarily, Joaquin Phoenix as well. Um, and I decided to launch in a project where I would take a deep dive into Gladiator, and so I rewatched the movie. I analyzed each and every scene and some notes. I'm going to have that in an article that's going to be coming out in filmforfans.com where I'll break down the characters uh, and some of the memorable scenes from the movie. Uh, but I thought it'd be fun to talk about it. So Rob and I watched it. And if you missed this, this was actually the first time Rob had ever seen Gladiator. So we have that. 
Rob has now seen Gladiator for the very first time. If nothing else, this project is worth it just to make Rob see Gladiator. Yeah, so I'm thankful for the opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but where we were at last time is we covered, uh, we analyzed the story and talked about the uh, the general plot of Gladiator and what we thought about it. We also began the analysis of each one of the characters. In the last episode, we uh, covered Marcus Aurelius, we covered Lucilla, and we covered Commodus. Um, this week, we will conclude the character examination with Proximo and Maximus. Then we'll move on to examining some of the best scenes in the movies and some other things we liked it and its general legacy and that kind of stuff. Uh, so let's get into it. Proximo, the character of Proximo. He uh, uh, played by Oliver Reed, who um, tragically died during the filming of this movie. Uh, so later scenes towards the end of the movie, they had to um, cut in um, clips from some outtakes of some other things he did, as well as bridge in some other actors uh, to kind of fill the role. Uh, but Proximo was an intricate character and very, very important to the story, uh, as he was the owner who eventually had Maximus in his fold of gladiators. So, Rob, what did you think of the character of Proximo and his role within the film? I felt that um, Oliver Reed played this character exceptionally well, in that you could feel a sense of weariness mm-hmm. within uh, this character's actions, motivations, and speaking. Um, there was a lot I felt of um, non-speaking moments with this character that were moving, I think particularly of the scene where they're right outside the Coliseum and he touches the foot of the statue. And he does say there, it's good to see you, old friend, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that was just uh, a, a simple line and and scene like that gives a lot of story for a character where there's not a whole lot of exposition mm-hmm. going on. I felt like um, I think that was my overall feeling of his character, that they told a pretty big story with him with very little actual dialogue or scenes like there was no flashback scene of like this is what he did it was just kind of understood by what he was trying to teach and how he was teaching yeah i think even more importantly Mm -hmm. yeah he's a fascinating character uh because you find out in the in the story that he was a previously gladiator he was so successful at being a gladiator that he won his freedom uh, from Marcus Aurelius, as it would have it. And he then turned his success and he turned his freedom into becoming an entertainer businessman in the very field that he succeeded in. What he knows is gladiators. So he turns around and creates this empire for himself. And you kick off and they, they want to show you the hardness of the man right from the beginning when he's interrogating and... Uh, uh, grabbing, as it were, uh, the, the man who's going to sell him some uh, some warriors to fight. Um, you're getting a sense of who this guy is. He's a no-nonsense guy. He's not going to mess around. Um, 
and there's a scene early when he's he's incorporating the new gladiators into his fold where he's where he's basically telling them, you guys are worthless there's nothing you can do about it um you're gonna die but hey have at it make it a good show <laughs> if you're gonna go go with you know go out with a bang uh, but what's fascinating about this is the role he ends up playing in the life of Maximus. Um, this gets a little bit into Maximus, but Proximo ends up being his mentor. It's Proximo who, who gives him the understanding of what he needs to succeed as a gladiator. Because Maximus already knows how to fight, but what he doesn't un- know and what he doesn't understand is the crowd. He doesn't understand the interplay. He doesn't understand the entertainment aspect of it. And this is abundantly clear in the scene with where uh, Maximus shouts out, are you not entertained? Is this mm. not why you're here? You know, but it's Proximo who has to come alongside of him and say, look, here's what you need to do. And it's Proximo who actually gives him that vision, gives him um the vision of what he can become because at that moment uh maximus is aimless um it's that conversation he has with proximo where he starts to maximus starts to begin to get a sense of a purpose a sense of a plan to that he can he too can stand in front of the emperor um and so uh every story has that mentorship role and proximo plays that for uh, Maximus, which is fascinating because you know you have this this general brought low, and here it is this slave who's who's been brought high, um, and their interaction it's just it's unlikely, and I, I love the way he talks and acts and things. Yeah, it's definitely um, like you said, the mentorship aspect of. Him taking Maximus under his wing is where we see a lot of that wisdom and understanding mm-hmm. from his previous character. And there probably be a there could probably be a whole movie about his character. Yeah, you know that's how much depth there is to the character in such a little amount of time. Mm-hmm. That screen. Yeah, and I th- I think like some of the lines and some of the dialogue he he gives are great. It's like you know he. He doesn't know much, but he knows his world. He knows what a part of it. He understands it. And there's one point it's, it's, it's like, he's talking, he's talking. He's like, it's, 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 and he's trying to think of an analogy, but he's not, he's not a well-educated man. So he's like, it's, it's like a storm. Okay. Yeah. It's like a storm. It was perfectly written dialogue because you could tell he was trying to sound like he was trying to sound like he's got something great in his mind, but he was having a hard time coming up with a good analogy. Uh, it was just so well acted and so well written. It was just Proxima is a great character for sure. Um, and and the last thing about him is then he, his character even has an arc too, because he ends up coming around and he ends up being the one who protects and sacrifices himself to save Maximus and one final noble act. And I think the line that kind of sums him up is the one uh, um, Maximus says to him near the end. He's like, Proximo, are you in danger of becoming a good man? Mm. And I think that that well sums up his character. All right. So now we got to move on to the main act, Maximus. 
the hero of our story played by Russell Crowe. This is, uh, he is an incredibly well-known character. Rob, talk to us about Maximus. What are your thoughts on on him, his character, um, all of that? I think the thing that struck me the most about this character is the emotional realism mm. of it. And I've talked many times about how movies sometimes can make you try and feel an emotion with a song or the way a certain scene is lit or a character crying or something, but there is a true depth in the fire that is simmering underneath everything this character does from the beginning of the movie until the end. Mm-hmm. Um, well-deserved best actor award for Russell Crowe for this character, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, it's uh, there. There are. I I think where where this character mostly succeeds is that any emotion that he is feeling, you're kind of in this movie put in his shoes. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, um, the movie is put, placing the audience in the shoes of Maximus, even though like you're not looking through his eyes, but the movie is told through his eyes. Yeah, and I think they do a very effective job of making you feel the things that he is feeling when he is feeling them. Mm-hmm. And some of that is done through dialogue. Some of that is done through facial expressions. Some of it is done through just physical acting. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably the biggest achievement here is that I, I feel like all of those things are a part of the character. And sometimes um, with actors, you find them to be really good at one of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's hard to put all three of those things into play as a character. Yeah. And I think that it was done with this character. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is nothing feels cheap about the backstory. Yeah. For him, it seems very visceral and raw. And, you know, he was, they tried to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> and you can feel that wanting to avenge that throughout the entire movie and every action that he takes from then on and trying to um, seek vengeance for his family as well, who was killed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a really, really fantastic character and development of character. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, in terms of Russell Crowe, what I love about him is he doesn't overact the character. His character has a sense of stoicism to it. I mean, like, if you think about Marcus Aurelius was a real person. Like, you know, I don't know if you've ever read, like, Marcus Aurelius's meditations. Like, he has, he has, he was a stoic, he was kind of a stoic philosopher. Uh, There is a sense of stoicism um, inherent as an undergirding of the Maximus character. He is not, he is not someone who is overly fond of, of talking through his emotions and talking through his language. And so as a result, Russell Crowe comes in and as you're saying, a lot of his acting is, is in his mannerisms is in his, the way he looks, the way he approaches things, the straightforward language. And, and it's so easy to overact a character who has to be under an understated lead, but he doesn't do that. He knows exactly when to put emotion into it 
and what emotion to play and exactly when not to. And it's, it's really well done by Russell Crowe. And I think that's, that's one of the hardest things. Like there are some characters that are, I don't want to say like, well, let's, let's just take Daniel day Lewis and Lincoln, you know, Lincoln has all these fiery speeches, all these, you know, all the storytelling, all these things like that is, I mean, it was so well played by Daniel Day-Lewis, but there's so much material there for him to go off of. Um, with Maximus, it's it, there. a lot of the character has to be acted subtly. And so that's that was what was really done. Uh, in terms of Maximus, the character himself, um, it's really fascinating because he is a very black and white character. He sees the world in black and white. It's right or wrong. When he's talking with Marcus Aurelius early in the film, he said, you know, the rest of the world is dark. Rome is the light. You know, it's it's very black and white. Uh, I have I I have my army. The enemy's on the other side. I go right after him and attack him. And so what you see is you see a character who's very concrete, who's very black and white, right and wrong, constantly put in situations that test that metal. Uh, early in the film, that shows him in the tent with all the politicians, and you can tell how uncomfortable he is in the world of politicians. Um, then later in the film, as he is, um, as he's a gladiator in the arena, you know, is I kill because I have to, because the enemy is right in front of me. And he has to be persuaded, no, you have to do more. Um, and even when he gets to Rome and he's in the arena and he's battling, you know, Commodus outside of the arena, he needs help from some from somebody else, in this case, Lucilla, to try and get him to, to think through the ideas of, no, you need to think through the political ramifications here. It's not just simply as the enemy is in front of you, you kill him. Um, so that's that's what's really fascinating about this character as well. In addition to um, the emotional element of it, um, you understand why he's angry. You understand it, but you see him go through those stages. Um, first, it's desperation, desperation to try and get to his family in time. Then it's it's grief and depression to the point where when he first shows up in uh, Proximo's layer of gladiators, um, he really doesn't care that much whether he lives or dies. He's not going to make it easy for other people, but he really doesn't care. Like he's just out there. He said, I'm above it all. I don't care. This is ridiculous. I don't want to be here. And then he slowly gets that sense of vision. He slowly catches that vision. Hey, if I really want to get my revenge, if I put on a show, maybe I'll get to meet the I'll get to meet the emperor, of course. Then I get to face Commodus. And you see him right at the beginning when he finally does meet Commodus. He, he still has that soldier's mentality. He bends down, picks up an arrow. He's like, I, I don't care if this is a suicide mission. I'm going after him. I'm getting my revenge. And then when he stopped because of the presence of, of Lucius, then that, that moment of pause allows him to be able to see what the other possibilities are when the crowd favors him over the emperor then he finally gets the sense of what's possible and that's when he starts finally growing into the role that he has for him uh but it's it's great 
Yeah, I think it's probably one of the best performances that I have seen. Mm-hmm. And um, there's no, uh, it's no surprise that Russell Crowe is known for this character. Yeah. Yeah. Had you seen him in anything before Gladiator? Well, obviously you had because you hadn't seen Gladiator. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, had you heard of him from roles? I mean, did, was the Gladiator the first role you heard of him in? Even I though think you hadn't so. seen it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly was for me. Of course, he went on that really hot streak after that uh, where uh, he was always in the running. He had a beautiful mind. I think the next mm-hmm. year, a beautiful mind came out. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's move on to uh, favorite scenes. Some of the best scenes from the movie. What uh, what do you make of it? What what were some of your favorite scenes? Give me one, and we'll kind of go back and forth on it. Um. So my I I guess I would say my favorite scene. I I think it would be hard to argue if there's a better scene in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's when uh, Commodus Walking Phoenix comes down to the arena mm-hmm. and his name, and mm-hmm. I think that delivery that line that moment is one of the better scenes i've ever seen yeah and to me is the standout scene in the movie just because of how he responds with his name mm-hmm. and the the fire behind it but the controlled fire like kind of kind of like um now you know who i am and now you know you're mm-hmm. screwed yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's uh it's such it's such a memorable scene. It really is. And it's because of everything that came everything that came in as a result of it. Um it is it is the most important scene in the movie. It is the fulcrum upon which the movie sits. Um you have the story prior to that scene and then you have the story after that scene and the entire movie takes a direct turn as a result of this scene. Uh, so it's not only one of the best scenes, it's the most important scene. Um, and I, I love, I love the way, the way it's acted both from, from Phoenix and from Crow on this one, because Maximus's character is not really ready to reveal himself to Commodus yet. Like, mm-hmm. if I can't kill you in this exact moment, I don't want you knowing who who I am. Like, that's that's the one benefit he had is anonymity. He didn't want to give that up yet, and he at first tries. You know, it's like, oh, my name's Gladiator, but it just wasn't going to work. It wasn't. He wasn't going to get away with it, and so. He turns his back on him, gets yelled at. And then you can just see, you can see in Russell Crowe, the way he's acting. You can see that moment where he's like, all right, if we're doing it, we're doing it. (laughs) And then he just goes off at him. This is who I am. This is what I am. And just in that moment, just turns the tables completely on Commodus. Up until that point, Commodus was getting absolutely everything he wanted in his entire world and his entire plan was coming off without a hitch. And in that one moment, it all falls away. Now it takes a while for that to come to fruition, but in that moment, everything is downhill for Commodus from that, from that point forward. Um, It's just so revealing about the two characters. One character knows exactly who he is 
and the other character doesn't. And it's never more revealed. You have an emperor and a slave. And the slave is significantly more powerful than the emperor as a result of knowing who he is and what he's after. Really powerful stuff. Yeah. Um, so one of my uh, one of my other favorite scenes is uh, I mentioned it earlier when we we're talking about Proximo and Maximus um, is that scene where Proximo and Maximus meet. Um, you see them interact up in Proximo's chambers um, after Maximus has had several really well-known battles. In fact, after specifically after the "Are You Not Entertained?" battle, where he throws the spear into the uh, into the crowd, he goes runs out, just kills a bunch of guys quickly, and Proximo brings him in, and Proximo n- understands like this guy is special. This this guy has something, but he's raw. Now Proximo is looking at him as like, all right, I can develop this guy into a great gladiator. At this point, Proximo still has no idea who this guy is. And in that moment, Maximus is directionless. Um, he's angry. He's depressed. He's rage-filled. Uh, and has no direction or purpose to his life. He's existing day to day in this rage-filled depression. And then it's that conversation with Proximo where Proximo talks about being a gladiator, about winning his freedom and getting to meet the emperor. And it's that conversation that Maximus looks at and says, huh, this might be a path towards my revenge. This is how I get my revenge. If I become good enough as a gladiator, maybe I will get to meet the emperor and I'll get my revenge. And in that moment, Proximo talking to him is like look you're great at killing but you need to be an entertainer you need to be an entertainer and he says to him he's like all right i get it let's do it i will show them something they've never seen and that battle of carthage then becomes the fulfillment of that promise but it's that scene that kind of that kind of gives maximus his direction mm-hmm. yeah i think it sets it apart from our conception of that era of gladiators, or we would just kind of think along the lines of kill or be killed. So you just mm-hmm. take care of things as fast as you can. Yeah. When I, you, you wonder how close to reality it is that were, were they playing to the, mm-hmm. the crowd and to the emperor and to other noble people who were there to try and gain favor with them. And you'd have to think that there probably was some aspects of that that were going on. Yeah. Cause you know, like these guys were su- the top gladiators were superstars. They were like the professional athletes of their day. Um, they were, they lived in the lap of luxury when they were good. Of course they could literally be killed at any moment, but like for their short lifespans, they were, they were treated really well if they were really good. Like we do know that historically. So there's probably a lot of accuracy to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's uh what's another scene you really liked? Um, I was struck by the scene where he is uh he first enters the camp where his family have been killed. Mm. Um I felt like a lot of emotional depth was displayed there without having to show a whole bunch of 
um, gory stuff, which very easily they could have done. They could have just shown the whole image of his family hanging on crosses, but all you really see is their feet. Yeah. And to me, I thought that was perhaps more powerful than if they had gone the way of showing a, a lot more of mm-hmm. what happened. So I was really more focused on his reaction to what had happened as opposed to what he was actually looking at, yeah. which I felt was very effective movie making for this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, it was really interesting because there's always that sense of, of like when it comes to the gore, what do you show? How much do you show? Um, and I think it always works out best when it's done in service of something. And you get just as much emotion out of that scene, the way it was shot, as you would have had they given you more gory details. But what they gained by doing it the way they did um, was the focus remains on Maximus. The focus is not the shock and awe value of seeing his his family burned and hanged, um, and especially the way it's shot. Like their feet are are basically surrounding his face, and so you you see the emotion direct close up on the face of of Maximus in that moment. Was, yeah, right. It was such a it was such a well done scene. Yeah, yeah, really cool. Um. I'll do one more here. And now I have to mention um, the scene where Marcus Aurelius tells Commodus that he won't be the rule, that he won't rule. Mm. Um, It's such, it's such like a scene. There's, there's a number of scenes here that feel like are straight out of a Shakespearean tragedy. And I think this is, this is one of those type of scenes. Um, you know, Commodus has been talking about, hey, I'm going to be named emperor. I'm going to be named emperor. And he's been worrying about it and fretting about it. And you see that. And that's like the whole purpose of that scene where him and Lucilla are riding in the in the carriage on the way to the camp. And so he's waiting for this moment where he's going to be named successor. Then he gets summoned into his father's tent. And <laughs> and Marcus really phrased it the worst way ever. He's like, are you ready to do your duty for Rome? You know? And in that moment, Commodus, of course, is going to think, oh, yeah, here it comes. Here's, I'm going to be named emperor. And then he says, you will not rule. Mm. And what's fascinating about this, and I talked about this when we talked about the Marcus Aurelius character, is Marcus acts surprised when Commodus is upset at the decision. Which is interesting. It's an interesting reaction in that moment. Um, and this just shows like how well these characters were both written and portrayed. Is there is a sense where parents are often naive about about the depth to which especially their children who've gone astray have have gone. Like they're often naive uh, to the faults of their own children at times, especially when they're not paying attention. And when they're choosing to be naive and there's a sense in which you really see Marcus really is how his, his naivete about who his son really is. Like he knows he's not moral. He knows he shouldn't be the ruler, but the idea that 
he doesn't really understand his son and the depths to which his son is willing to go for power and ambition um, is really striking in this. And as I love the scene because there's a moment where you almost feel sympathy for Commodus when he's upset and his father is trying to console him. And then of course that moment immediately switches and, and you, you see, you see Marcus apologetic, um, upset, crying to, you know, admitting that like he's a failure as a father and that's why his son, is, it's just a really moving moment. And then it immediately turns on a dime when a hug turns into strangling his father to death. <laughs> and, and, oh man, it's, it's the way it's shot, the way it's acted. It's so, so good. Yeah, I feel that Marcus really underestimated the extreme to which his son would go. I didn't. I th- you feel like he thinks his son is incapable of um, going so far as to murder. Yeah, to achieve what he wants. Maybe it's um, him having such a low opinion of him that he doesn't think he would do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, any other scenes you want to talk about or do you want to move on? I think we can move on. Okay. Uh, so what else do you make about it? Other, other things that struck you? Other things that stood out to you as you watched the movie? Um, or And or we can get into like the legacy of the film. I mean, I think we talked about this briefly before we started our uh, overall discussion. But I feel that even the small characters in this movie were impactful in what they did. You talked about this. Um, I also think about uh, Digimon Hansu and the mm. other characters who were gladiators. Yeah. They didn't do very much, but I felt like they added something to the movie. And I think that's the main question when it comes to an ensemble um, character. Do they add something to the movie? Is there a reason for them to be there? And I felt like um, I felt I felt like there wasn't much wasted in this movie when it came to um, every character who had something to say at some point during the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a couple things that I don't know that I've mentioned. Um, this movie did win a best actor or an Oscar for costuming and man, did it knock it out of the park with the costuming. Um, the, the outfits that Joaquin Phoenix wears as emperor are just crazy interesting and good and um the helmet that maximus wears in the arena if that's not the coolest helmet you've ever seen i don't know what else is man Mm -hmm. it's it's so fitting and so well done um yeah the costuming in this is just incredible um the use of rose petals is really really interesting I have a, a thing I'm going to write about that where it breaks that down a little bit. It's used in key victorious moments. Hmm. It's used first when Commodus comes back to Rome as the emperor for the first time. And I love the line. He, he arrives as a conquering hero, but what has he conquered? And, and then it's used in one of Maximus's last battles in the outer lands. Uh, you see the rose petals sprinkled over the gladiators before they enter the arena. So you have this, you know, two, two uh, people on the opposing side of the world achieving victory. And then it's not used again until that final battle 
with Maximus and uh, Commodus in the arena. It's covered in rose petals. Mm. So you have one final one final showdown for for supremacy. Really interesting stuff. Uh, anything else that stood out to you? Uh, nothing comes to mind. I'll just uh, I'll give one more briefly. One of the coolest things underrated things about the film is you got to see a fully functioning working coliseum in its prime that was Mm. really cool that was really cool because they did they went to really good extent to make it look and feel authentic and that that was something um that i don't know that anyone has really done a better job before or since of giving you a real working coliseum and what it was Mm. very cool Okay, so that is our breakdown of Gladiator. Um, thank you for sticking with us through two episodes as we broke down that film in uh, a lot more detail than we usually break down films. Uh, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, but speaking of uh, movie education, Rob has been embarking on a horror education. And Rob, why don't you give us uh, the highlights of, of what your project is and uh, what your status is at that point? So I have uh, I had asked uh, my best friend to give me a list of 30 scary movies to watch in October, one each day. And they are not all necessarily horror movies, but some are more psychological uh, thriller suspense kind of films. Uh, one example would be last night I watched The Bone Collector with Denzel Washington mm. and Billy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, we just watched Halloween ends in the theater this evening. Nice. Uh, so Halloween ended. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I will say this about the new Halloween movie that, um, Michael Myers is not coming back to at least that Michael Myers is not coming back to life. Um, the way they killed him. <laughs> so, um, I, it could be the last one for Jamie Lee Curtis, in which case it would be certainly an ending of uh you know a big aspect of how the movies are made and the storyline um i have the more and more horror slash suspense slash thriller movies i watch the more i realize just how um specialized how distinct the different sub genres under this main genre are Mm -hmm. there's a huge difference between a movie like Halloween that's about uh, a slasher movie, if you will, versus a psychological thriller versus um, like a campy kind of horror movie, which we we also went and saw a movie called Trick or Treat. Mm. Um, it was released in the early 2000s and actually came out in the theater for the first time ever this year. Mm. Um, so it's like kind of a cult classic type movie. It was um, there's four different stories happening all at once on the same night, Halloween night in this one town. And the stories kind of weave together and intersect at different points. And at the very end, you see how they were all connected, how they all start originate kind of in the same place. And it was pretty fascinating. I really enjoyed that. Um, I do think that there is a very high bar for a horror movie being um, spectacular or being something special. Mm. Um, and I think watching through some of these movies has made me appreciate some that I've seen before that I did not realize were quite as good as they are. Mm. And, um, one, one I can think of right now, just, uh, 
this week I rewatched the new um, It movies. It um, okay. from 2017, 19, 17, I think. And then the sequel that came out two years ago, I believe, two or three years ago. Um, and those movies are both really quality um, when it comes to this genre. They're just extremely well executed. The characters are great. The cinematography is great. The sense of fear that is um, brought about in the movie is uh, real and genuine. That's something that can be very difficult to do. I found that I'm not really scared by very much Mm. when it comes to horror movies, because a lot of it is telegraphed or a lot of it is meant to just like kind of trick you and just make you jump. The the term jump scare um, is something that you hear when it comes to this genre, where there'll just be a sudden loud noise or movement um, in the background that's unrelated to what the scary thing actually is, but it's just meant to make you jump, you know? Um, so it's it's uh, certainly been um, interesting to start going through these movies, and I've been watching one every night so far, um, and I've been able to go back and rewatch some movies I really like. Again, another one in the thriller vein was Along Came a Spider, Morgan mm-hmm. Freeman. Yeah. which is one of my favorite movies um, in that genre. Um, so I'm looking forward to watching some more as we go along. I still have some classic ones to watch. Um, Poltergeist is on the list. The Exorcist is on the list. Um, I got to rewatch Constantine. That was on the list mm. and made me even more excited for a potential <laughs> one coming out. Yeah. With Keanu Reeves. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll be, uh, we'll be putting some stuff up on the website about the movies that I've watched. If you're interested in checking some, scary slash thriller things out for yourself definitely yeah um do you have so far have you found that you have a favorite of the subgenres? um and i i would also i mean i'm not as i'm not much of a horror expert but i would mm-hmm. also kind of separate out the like supernatural like demonic mm-hmm. force movies yeah. from some of the yeah. other ones i think that's kind of a subgenre as well in my opinion uh, yeah. but do you have a favorite subgenre so far i really do think that my favorite is like um more leaning towards psychological mm-hmm. or where um so not a lot of blood and gore but like just enough at the right time and there is uh, a movie that came out recently that kind of fits in this one um would be nope mm-hmm. the jordan um one that i really probably the best example i would give of this is it comes at night okay you have not watched that one they never actually show the bad guy or bad entity or whatever it is it's just Mm -hmm. all the characters reactions to it which is to me scarier than actually seeing the thing because you have no concept of what the thing is you're fighting against how are you going to fight against it yeah and i think that the psychological one that's the one that most transcends boundaries mm-hmm. um in terms of horror movies uh i think that's the one that does i mean a lot of the other ones are firmly in the realm of horror um that's one of the ones that can kind of uh, trans transfer boundaries most easily and also um, yeah so. and also um not directly related to this but another movie that i saw recently that i wanted to mention is don't worry darling which i watched mm. the, in the theater okay yeah um, chris pine is fantastic as the like megalomaniac leader of this 
um, community out in the middle of the desert. Um, there are some major twists and turns to things. I kind of predicted part of it, but not all of it. Okay. Before I watched it, um, Florence Pugh is also in it and very, very good as I have come to expect her to be. Um, she seems to be quite good at acting. <laughs> yeah. So good to see her more things. And, um, yeah, don't worry, darling. I would recommend if, certainly if you're into, uh, that thriller suspense kind of movie still also. So mm-hmm. it's not directly related to the horror thing, but it is, uh, certainly an unnerving movie. It's an uncomfortable movie. <laughs> um, but I, I like that kind of thing. So nice. Excellent. Okay. Well, that is the show, everyone. Thanks for, uh, hanging out with us. And, uh, if you didn't get a chance to listen to uh, Gladiator Part 1, uh, make sure you check that out on the podcast and YouTube. And make sure you visit filmforfans.com where we'll have, we've got some great content up there now, but we're going to have even more coming with uh, the written uh, review of Gladiator and Rob's horror list. So uh, make sure you keep tuning in for that. And we'll see you next week on the podcast. Until next time, enjoy the movies. <laughs>